Our first lesson comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at the 17th verse. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go to Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is taking possession. And you are to say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also are taking possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah said to Ahab, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And I will bring disaster upon you and I will utterly burn you up and I will cut off every male in Ahab, both bond and free, in Israel And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you provoked the Lord to anger and you led Israel to sin. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his flesh. He fasted. He lay around in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster upon his house in his days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the good news in this strange Elijah and Ahab story. I mean, the story of dogs being prophesied to be licking up blood. What good news could be found in this strange Elijah and Ahab story here in 1 Kings chapter 21? Well, you have to set the context of what Elijah is being sent into. If you're with me at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 21, in the first verses, we read the context of what's just happened. Verse 1 of chapter 21, 1 Kings. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is very near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, according to the law of Moses, about the land not being taken away from its long-term inheritors, Ahab, Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth is following the law of God. And Ahab, verse 4, went into his house vexed and sullen, Because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he'd said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and would eat no food. He effectively is having a king's temper tantrum. And Jezebel, his wife, has a solution. The following verses then tell us that Jezebel says, here's what we'll do. We will frame Naboth as a blasphemer falsely accuse him and as a result he'll be murdered in the town square just outside the city and then you can have the 
vineyard to yourself because we'll get Naboth out of the way. I mean, you are the king after all. No one can stand in the way of whatever you want. Verse 16 completes the background where we read, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. See, everything that leads up to this moment is this act of incredible wickedness, this horrible wickedness. And so the question is, what is the good news that we find in this strange story of Elijah and Ahab? Well, the good news of this story, if we can hear it this morning, is that there is a way back from evil. That there is an ability to turn by God's grace from an evil direction and be brought back to a place of transformation. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about evil, evil in an abstract context. I'm talking about the ability for your evil and my evil to have a way back from that. See, we're very good at, at thinking that this is just an Ahab story. Just like we saw with David when he was being confronted with Nathan. Oh, this is a David story. No, no. These stories are about us, ultimately. Just as it's easy for us to point the finger and say, oh, look at wicked Ahab. So it is when we look at the David story that we can say, oh, look at all the sins out there and miss the point of Nathan's word, you are the man. We love to pass blame. I love how 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. These stories are about what is growing in our own hearts. We love to pass the blame for what's going on in our world. It's those people's problem. We love to pass the blame about what's going on in our households. It's that particular person in my family's problem. We love to pass the blame for what's going on in our workplaces. It's someone else's problem. It's like this, the new CEO of a company, the outgoing CEO gives the new CEO four sealed envelopes. And he says to him, when you come to an impassable conflict, open envelope number one. And when you come to another impassable conflict, open envelope number two, and so on and so forth. And so after a few months, the CEO hits a conflict that he just can't solve. And so he opens up envelope one and it says, blame the former CEO. And it works. It's brilliant. He blames the CEO. Everyone moves forward. A few months later, he hits another crisis that he can't solve. And he opens envelope number two. And it says, blame the economy. And he does so. And it works pretty well. Not quite as well as the blame the CEO, but, you know, most people get behind it. And he moves forward. Again, a few months later, he hits another impassable conflict, opens envelope three, and it says, blame the staff. That doesn't go over so well, but it does sort of get him through the present conflict. And it's only a few weeks later that he hits another insurmountable conflict and opens the fourth envelope, which says, prepare four envelopes. <laughs> See, we so badly want to pass the blame and judge others without recognizing our own place within these stories. This Elijah and Ahab story helps us to stop pointing fingers and recognize our own evil. And that's the good news in this story. The good news in this story, if we can hear it, is that our 
sinful souls are seen by God. That the way that we can come back from a trajectory of evil is to recognize the good news that our sinful souls are seen, seen by God. There's no secrets. But not only are our sinful souls seen, our sinful souls are sentenced by God. God passes judgment on our wickedness. And, and as hard as it is to hear it, this is good news. We ultimately want God to pass sentence on evil. But not only is the good news of how we turn back from this evil trajectory that God sees our sinful souls and that our sinful souls are sentenced, but the whole gospel is in this text that our sinful souls are sought by God that God is seeking to save sinful ones. So first we see the good news is that our sinful souls are seen by God. Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, right? Why did God come with his word to Elijah? To send him to Ahab. And the, the sort of crux, the center, the summary of the Lord's word to Ahab through Elijah is verse 20. I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, what a phrase, sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab had completely given over his life, it seems, to evil. And in doing so, we see that Ahab is kind of like the uber sinner. He's kind of the poster child for sinfulness, right? We can all see something of ourselves and all sinfulness in Ahab. He kind of encapsulates it all. I like how Peter Lightheart says Ahab is, in one sense, a David seizing what is dear to his neighbor and arranging for his neighbor's death. Ahab is also a Cain, as in Cain and Abel, because he has killed his brother in Israel. But Ahab is ultimately incited by Jezebel, also a kind of Adam who takes forbidden fruits, the fruit of another's vineyard. In other words, this story of Ahab is meant to sort of encapsulate all of those stories of sin. This great picture of a great sinner before God. Thus, verse 25 we get the descriptor that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. I mean, what an honorific. There was no one who sinned like Ahab sinned. His mother must have been so proud. See, Ahab is confronted when Elijah the Tishbite comes to him. He's confronted with the reality that not only is he a sinner, but that his sin is seen by God. As Psalm 139, the first few verses read, O Lord, you searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God sees our sin. And we know it's there. It's like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, 
who was known to be a practical joker. And probably his most famous practical joke was to write a telegram to 12 of his closest friends that simply read, flee, all is discovered. Now these were 12 virtuous, upstanding citizens in society. And Arthur Conan Doyle was shocked that within 24 hours, they'd all left the country. We know our secret broken sins. And we can try and hide it all we want. We can clear our browser history as often as we think we should. But guess what? There's a God in heaven who sees, who sees what is broken and what is evil in us. And Ahab is confronted with that reality. And it's good news because he can stop pretending Stop playing this game of hide and seek like Adam and Eve in the garden and rather come out with his hands up and surrender. I know that you see my wickedness and my sin. This is why we begin each of our services with that colic for purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Those words launch us into a service of worship where we can hear God's word and God's word of salvation examining our hearts. The good news that God sees Ahab's sin is that though Ahab is a great sinner, you and I must face the fact that God sees that you and I have a far bit more of Ahab in us than we care to admit. But the good news is not just that our sinful souls are seen by God. No more pretending. But the good news is that our sinful souls are sentenced by God. And this is where it gets hard because you think, I'm not sure I want God sentencing me. I'm not sure that he, I really want his judgment and punishment coming down on me. But ultimately we want God to judge wickedness and evil. Verses 21 and 22. God says through the prophet Elijah, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will wipe and will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you've provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. See, this word of judgment, this, this word that we so often would read this and think, oh goodness, I, I don't ever want those words spoken over me. But here's the truth. You want them spoken over others. When you perceive evil, true evil and wickedness in this world, you desire that these words be spoken. That God cannot just turn a blind eye to the evil in this world and still in, re, remain good and, and keep his integrity as a holy God. A true and holy and good God cannot look on evil and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Right? We see this in small measures in our own lives. We, we, we drive down the tollway and there's some maniac driving all over the tollway, putting everyone's life in danger. And you're thinking, you know, how could this person possibly have any love for humanity, putting everyone in danger? And then you come over the hill and on that rare occasion, you see them pulled over by a police officer 
and you shout as you roll down the window, there is a God who sees in heaven. At least that's what I do and my children shudder. More seriously, the theologian Miroslav Volf, who is Croatian, reflecting on the ethnic cleansing that went on during the Yugoslav Wars, writes this. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. We long for a God who is just. And I can tell you that our witness in the world matters. The fact that we as a community of Christ bearers in this world can affirm the reality that there is a God in heaven who judges evil. This is imperative to how we speak to and reach an unbelieving world. Because even unbelievers long for justice. Unbelievers long that there would be some kind of justice brought to bear in this world. One of the most celebrated television series that I think examines this idea is Breaking Bad. Now, those of you who haven't seen Breaking Bad, I'm not recommending it. But it is an amazing picture of a seemingly good man's descent into absolute hell and wickedness. And what's interesting, well, what's interesting is some people think I look like Aaron Paul. So by the way, you guys can, you know, talk about that on Twitter, but um, I'm not convinced, but I've had former uh, communications people put faces like mine next to Aaron Paul's. And um, anyway, um, (laughs) clearly no one in the room agrees with that. Um, Vince Gilligan, my point, who's the creator of Breaking Bad. This is a non-believer, but he's the creator and producer of Breaking Bad, wrote this, said this of what Breaking Bad meant to him in this examination of this descent into hell. He said, if there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. He's a non-believer, right? He says, if religion is a reaction to man and nothing more, it seems to me that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. These are the words of a non-believer but a fellow human being who experiences the wickedness and evil of this world and says, there must be justice. You and I need to face the reality that God judges and sentences evil and that evil dwells in you and me. Our sinful souls, like Ahab's, are sentenced. But are you ready for the gospel? As Friedrich Buechner says, the gospel is always bad news before it's good news. Right? We've got to hear how desperately deplorable we are before we can hear the righteousness of God. 
the salvation of God that has been won for us. Because not only is the good news in this Ahab and Elijah story that God sees our sinful souls and sentences our sinful souls, but the good news in this strange Elijah and Ahab story is that our sinful souls are sought by God. God seeks to save this. God seeks to save this. Sinful, broken, Ahab-like that we may be. Because look at verse 27. Ahab miraculously has a turnaround. Verse 27, and when Ahab heard these words, this is Ahab. No one had sold himself more to sin than Ahab. Verse 27 says, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, fasted, lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. He repented. And it would appear that this was God's intention the whole time. That God, in fact, sent Elijah for the purpose not of Ahab's destruction, but Ahab's restoration through repentance. You see it in verse 28. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And you want to say, didn't we just hear that? We did. Verse 17. This story is bookended by the phrase, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. At the beginning, God calls Elijah the Tishbite to go see Ahab. And at the end, the word of the Lord comes again to Elijah the Tishbite with what word? Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster on him in his days. See, God's intention, oh, the strange, beautiful, amazing intention of God has been all along to save this wicked sinner. He sent Elijah not to bring fire down on his head, but to speak true words of condemnation for the purpose of repentance, that he would turn as we hear in the words of Ezekiel chapter 18, God desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that they would turn from their wickedness and live. God's intention, God's character is always to rescue. In the words of Joel chapter 2, these words of mercy, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The Lord sought Ahab's wicked soul to turn it around and to save him. But let's be clear. Such mercy is not without its cost. Such mercy always will have a cost. See, this story, this strange Elijah and Ahab story, in fact, in a pretty phenomenal way, points us to the ultimate salvation found in Jesus, the ultimate mercy. Jesus is right in this text. Can you see him? In this text, Jesus' name is Naboth. 
Because hear this, because of Ahab's evil, an innocent man had to be falsely accused of blasphemy, carried out of the city and executed. And through it all, this wicked sinner Ahab found mercy to repent. So you and I, in our wickedness, all of our evil, all of our sin results in an innocent man being tried falsely for blasphemy, taken out of the city gates and executed. And through his death, we find mercy to repent and be forgiven. As we approach the table each and every week, we come beholding the cost of what it takes for God to seek an Ahab. What it takes and what it costs God to redeem our wickedness. So what is the good news of this strange Ahab and Elijah story? It's the good news that there is a way back from evil. Perhaps you need to hear that this Sunday more than ever before, that there is a way back from evil. There is a way back from the direction that you may be heading in your life. And the way back is through understanding the good news that God sees our sinful souls. God sentences those sinful souls, but in it all, he is seeking our sinful souls to save way too much alliteration this morning. And friends, this is what changes the world. It changes us to understand this gospel, seen, sentenced, yet sought. This changes the way we interact with the world. It changes the fundamental way that we'll live as little Christs out in the world. Because just this last few weeks, we saw as a nation, as a world, but certainly as a local community, gospel profound living. When Brant Jean, in that courtroom in Dallas, told a convicted murderer, Amber Geiger, who murdered his brother, Botham Jean. He told her, I forgive you. And then he hugged her. And then to add even more amazement, the judge herself, Tammy Kemp, says these words from the bench, Miss Geiger, Mr. Jean has forgiven you. And Amber Geiger said, do you think, she says to the judge, do you think God will forgive me? And the judge says, I know he will. And then she, the judge, stepped down and hugged the convicted Amber Geiger and handed her a Bible. Such mercy can only be shown by those who know that they are nothing less than forgiven Ahabs. Such mercy can only be shown by those who know that they are nothing less than forgiven, mercifully forgiven Ahabs. 
Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.